listener production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Julio Ribeiro, founder of biotech company Inventure Life Sciences. We have now the financial support to take this further to start to uh, do clinical trial with patients. And that's again the scratching the surface because we start the skin, muscles, the liver, and we have inquiries about doing yeah, cornea. No, the, the, the sky is the limit of what this technology can do for you. Dr. Julio Ribeiro was born in Belo Horizonte in the south of Brazil. His dad was a successful restaurant owner who was able to create a safe and prosperous upbringing for Julio and his family. Growing up in the 1970s and 80s, well before the internet or social media, Julio was instead obsessed with books about science that his father had collected. One of seven kids, it was a fun-filled childhood for Julio. And I got the influence of all of them. I have one brother that was fascinated by Greek uh, philosophy. We used to have all the collections of Greek philosophy. Another one was more in science and technology. And then uh, my father was very into buy a lot of books. I have not houses. I was full of books and encyclopedia. And uh, music was very, each one of us has different tastes for music. And then I inherited the very broad taste. We used to listen to opera. We used to go to opera. We used to go to, when I was a kid, we used to go to concert every Sunday morning. There was a cool youth concert on the opera theater in the city. Then it was a free concert. And I remember that you know, was kind of the things we used to do on Sunday morning. So you must have been, you must have been a pretty good student because you, you studied, I think, agricultural engineering in the early 80s. And then you did a master's degree in genetic science. Uh, and you actually got a job. Uh, maybe tell me about this. I think potentially while you're at university, um, and I think commercializing the DNA fingerprint, um, which sounds which sounds complex. My actually, when I was when I was a kid, I was always very independent. My family, used to, I think, my father used to say, "If you want to do, to do something, tell him not to do it." Right? And then I was have that very uh, independent mindset since very young, and uh, and then I was very independent from my family. Then I, I decided to, I got a job in a bank. I used to live in the, in the center of the city where we were born. And um, I decided I want to do some work. And then I went to work for, was a was a financial type of bank where people make you no know, cost for investment. And uh, I was 14 years old and I started to be like office boy. And I remember was, I was very fond of the place. I have very good memories. It was a very nice bank in a very old building. Those not all those building for banks. They're quite beautiful. And uh, I have a boss. She, she was really, you know, encouraged me. She was really impressed with my uh, interest in everything in curiosity. And she actually helped me. Uh, she used to um, teach me how to do all the closing of the, the cash on the end of the day and confer all these things. I even, there was a huge safe on the building and she would uh, help me uh, uh, teach me how the thing that she do. She would let me do all the things, even close the safe in the evening and, uh, and do all sorts of things that uh, the financial people in the, in the bank used to do was was a big lesson for me. And then I um, 
I resigned from that job when I got the entry to a university to do uh, engineering. It was a beautiful university, 300 kilometers from the city center. The university campus reminds me of you know, Centennial Park kind of place. It's a beautiful campus with nice buildings. It was, uh, was a agricultural college and I did agricultural uh, engineering. When I finished that, I decided to stay because it was such a nice place. And I used to be like, I used to play water polo, swing, cycling, uh, volleyball. I was like, this is a good life. I want to stay here a bit longer. And, but at the same time, it was a very high demand university. It was very, very, it was very strong discipline. It was, people used to say it was more like a, uh, army barracks than a university because it was extremely requirement for students to, to perform well. And you create that environment where the whole, the whole conversation of everyone was, uh, was studying. It was, was nice because the, the atmosphere was just pure study and you, you get very excited about the subjects and the, the things you learn. And then I did master in science of uh, genetics uh, with focus on bacterial genetics. Uh, there was a bacteria that, uh, that was found in Brazil that could produce alcohol. In the 70s, the Brazilian government, due to the few cries from the shorts of film, the 70s decided to be Brazil independent of petrol and develop this alcohol program where today most of the cars in Brazil run pure alcohol. And that university has a project of studying how to produce alcohol more efficiently. And that was my master's science was in that program. And when I finished that, because my experience in genetics with bacteria, I got a job in the capital city when I went back there on developing DNA fingerprinting uh, for forensic use. Uh, was a, was a, a university lab with uh, five or six PhD students. And my job was to translate that technology from the university campus to the laboratory in the city center where they used to do uh, forensic fingerprinting for uh, anything, crime or paternity test. Uh, one, one thing that's important to understand is Prior to DNA fingerprint, there was no way to identify a person by paternity to confirm. You could just eliminate by plot type. But to prove that someone is the son or the daughter of someone, it was impossible. Uh, I believe it was the first commercial lab in the world to use DNA fingerprints for this type of application. I I don't remember anyone doing that before. We used to develop this. The technology was developed in the UK. And um, and the professor that was at the head of that department, he works in Canada and Europe, and then he, he brought back the technology to Brazil and created his own company, and he hired me to help him establish the technology as a commercial enterprise. And it was a very good experience for me because it was a nice team, a nice team of people doing PhD. Most of them today are very, you know, very well-known scientists in Brazil and even overseas. And, um, and it was fun, but at the same time, it was a very, very intense science because there was a lot of challenges to transform what was the university technology into something that can be done day in and day out commercially. When I was in Brisbane in 2002, I had my name on a, on a tag on the conference for genetics. It was a global conference of genetics in Brisbane. And this guy from the FBI saw my name and said, oh, I learned how to do some of the DNA fingerprint from your papers. And I was like, oh, that's a... Was a big, uh, was a big, <laughs> but uh, was, yeah, that's to show there was very few people who were able to do that back then. And what were you doing? What was your role in the business? Uh, my role was to translate the technology to from a commercial, from a, like a, a university to do one off, and that's it. And be able to do hundreds a day, 
end of the day, you know what I'm saying, to convert, how do you make this that you can do one today? How do you reduce the cost of it and how you make it work every day? Because really various experiments, you know, it can work one day and not work the next day, right? And we have that problem all the time and we didn't know why. Sometimes I remember there was like five weeks that we couldn't get any results. And I couldn't sleep, I spent the whole day. My job was actually to work with the professor, of course, he'll give all the ideas and then I have to go and do the work. But we developed well, something that we did ourselves, no one was doing as to, there was a technique called Southern blot or Western blot, Southern blot because we transferred the DNA from a gel. Imagine a gel that's like, you no know, five millimeter thick and you, you run the DNA into that gel and then you have to transfer that DNA to a piece of paper. That's called Southern blot. And instead of, when you transfer the DNA like that, there was a lot of loss of DNA on the process of transferring it. And what we decided to do is to dry the gel and make it very thin, like a, like a glad wrap paper, a plastic. Because then what you need is the, the space for the probe that's going to, to mark the DNA bands to reach the DNA where it is. And what we found at the time is that the, the, when you transfer the DNA from the gel to the paper, a lot of the DNA was lost and then the, the, the band was very faint. And sometimes you could not read it. By drying the gel and keeping all the DNA there, there was no loss, and then we could have a much stronger signal. And that's something that we created that we published a little technical paper. Uh, today, I don't even like to show it because you get embarrassed by this, what you have today, what you do, this looks like no, the, uh, no caveman type of huh. technology. You know, when you look, this is to do. Sometimes I say, oh, look, this is what we used to do. It's like no, primitive, <laughs> right? But well, back then, it's... it's um, was a major, uh, at least solved the problem. And the other thing we started to do in Brazil, uh, there was technology that you probably hear now today, everybody knows about, but it was you know, called PCR. You know what PCR is, don't you? You know, the PCR test. For, we do now. Yeah. Well, PCR was a brand new technology. And in my mind, that was one of the most biggest revolutions in biomedical research in the last few decades, because when I got the first PCR machine in the lab, we probably for like, you should put it in a temple and, and pour to it every day because it's so, so, things that would take us like five, six weeks to do, you could do in, in, in less than an hour. So you, you're working at, uh, in this groundbreaking DNA commercialization business and you've got your master's degree and suddenly you decide to move to Australia of all places. Obviously, why we're talking today. Uh, that's, that's a pretty significant move. You're, you're, Pretty, I'm not sure if you had a family at the time, but you were pretty young. What made you make the decision to come all the way to Australia from Brazil? Uh, I don't think you had a, you had no job offer at the time. You should have just decided to, to come across. I was being against traveling when I was, because uh, I went to university, was 300 kilometers from home, and I really liked being there. And then every time I have to travel home, I was like, no. I was found very, I found travel very, first because I was like my training. I was very disciplined in my training. I never liked anything that interfered with my swimming or water polo, anything training. And second, I just don't like sitting up. At the time, it was a pass that takes from the university to the capital city. When I went back to home, I have all, I built my friendships again, and my friends like travel. They want to go everywhere in Europe. And uh, and I always be like, no, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm happy here. I'm happy with my training, my swimming, my sports. And they used to drag me to go with them to, to Rio de Janeiro or other cities. And uh, and that's that led to someone suggested to 
to go to, to I don't know how it started. Well, it was become like, like they're going to send me to Australia. I think that was kind of, no. Julie's going to move to Australia. He needs to learn how to travel, something like this. And someone, uh, one evening, I think someone gave me a form to apply to migrate to Australia. And then I actually got a permanent visa because my science background at the time. And then I thought, oh, I have to go now because if I don't go up here, I was wondering. And I arrived here in 1990 and, um, and then I, I went to a hotel and I slept and then I wake up 9 p.m. and I realized what I've done. I said, oh, <laughs> this, now we don't have, because there was no way to, there was no internet or a phone I think uh, I think one minute of phone call was two dollars eighty cents. Wow! To call, and I was fortunate that I met uh, a guy on the plane, and uh, we talk about he was uh, his his sister was living here, and um, we share a house uh, for six months. And the first week I was here on a Saturday, he told me to go and buy the Herald, and there was the day where they, the Herald used to be like you no, know, almost like ten centimeter thick. And they used to have all the jobs for health and, and research of the health on Saturday morning. And on Monday, I went to visit this lab at the University of Sydney because I thought I'd better take my resume personally instead of sending a letter. And um, this uh, professor thought that I have the skills and the, and the, the experience in PCR that was very valuable for her lab. And then she offered me the job there. And then we did the opportunity to do a PhD in medicine. As an engineer, I was now working in a hospital doing PhD medicine and with the project of bladder cancer. And that, that job was, I got, I think it was a Monday. I arrived here on Wednesday. Then the Monday I have a job to work on this research program. And um, I remember going to hospital. My English was terrible. I couldn't hardly understand anyone. But not only that, I was able to learn the scientific technology of um, medical research. And especially, we used to sit in the hospital, uh, discuss with all the clinicians about the uh, therapy of patients and the technology that was totally foreign to me. I didn't have experience in that technology. But after six months, I felt very comfortable. I felt at home in the place and I started to make contributions. Despite his doubts about the job and challenges with the language, Julio stayed in Australia and kept his word to his friends. In 2006, a few years after arriving, Julio had a PhD and set his sights on a new challenge. Julio had come across 3D bioprinting during his time in Brazil, but it wasn't until meeting a professor named Justin Gooding at the University of New South Wales did Julio decide to pursue this interesting idea. But Julio needed lots of cash to fund it, and to generate enough capital to fund the bioprinting research project, Julio went back to his roots in South America and observed a fast-growing but uniquely Brazilian technology. In Brazil, they have almost 300 million heads of cattle. It's 10 times more than Australia. And IVF was growing very fast in Brazil. It becomes a booming uh, uh, industry to improve genetic of animals. And because you, you, you speed up the process of uh, genetic improvement, you get much better uh, quality animals by doing IVF. And then I brought the team from Brazil that was... Uh, Brazilians leading, the work leading on that uh, technology. I, I, for my pocket, I pay everything for people to come. I, I used to work in GMP facility. Everyone doing IVF used back of the farm, dirty sheds that doing something very, very poorly organized. I established the lab in a GMP facility. I 
A GMP stands for Good Manufacturing Practice, where you make medical and, and, uh, and uh, pharmaceutical products. The lab was the most, my idea was, I want, if I'm going to do something, I want to do the best in the world. And then I put the team in a place where there was a very strict observance of rules and cleanliness. The place has like, we have to walk two, three doors before you go into the lab. The sterility is extremely high. People have to wear gown, gown body to walk into the lab. It means that I will not have a problem of contamination. And the company started to generate cash to pay for the the investment that I was made in seeing on inventor life science because I, I um, created inventor life science. The work for inventor life science started in 2011 and I financed it all the way to 2017 with the money that I was um, uh, earning from the business in Plaisant. Some of the farmers there now, they don't do any other way of uh, reproducing an IVF. We have no, we have more than 30,000 I think in Australia so far. And it helps Australia with the exports, the quality of beef. Just to give an idea, let's say that you have a, a, a Wagyu cow that has a, a, a marbling nine, for example, in your farm, right? There's an example. Of course, this is an exaggerated example just for people. That mm. Sure. Marbling goes from zero to nine, and the price of the beef is based on the number, the higher the number, the more expensive the marbling. Let's say that you have 10 cows in your farm that uh, produce uh, offspring that generate nine marbling, and you have the other 90 produce six or five marbling. Well, you want to, to breed the cows that produce nine marbling instead of the one that produce six or five. With IVF, you take the eggs of the cows that produce nine, uh, 10 or nine, sorry, and then you take those eggs to, to my lab in Brisbane, and then you fertilize those eggs there, and then you transfer these eggs to the cows that produce six or five. It means that you have cows that has poor genetics, pregnancy of cows that are high genetics. It means that the next generation you already have all your cows with nine. You, you, instead of, if you don't do that, if you do artificial insemination, for example, you have to go get half of the cows because you get the semen from a very good quality bull and put the semen in a very poor quality cow. You get half of the genes from the bull, the other half is from the mother, that's not good quality. And then you have to go again and again and again until you get the, 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 the quality you need. With IVF, you just jump straight to the next generation is the quality that you need. That's the huge difference for farmers because they produce, let's say a farm produces a, a, a bull now, Today, they have the bull born by IVF. Next year, he sells those bulls. Uh, um, again, this is just an example of what the impact it has for the farm. I say, I'll sell my bull if I go to a, the uh, uh, auction. Uh, and then I go there. The average price is $5,000, $6,000, $9,000. When you get the bull from those farmers that's doing IVF, and then you start to look at the price. I was there one day in Brisbane. I saw oh, those farmers that we, our clients, the price of the bull is eight thousand dollars, ninety thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars. You know, like that's that's what it does for the farmer in terms of uh, doing IVF. Instead of selling a bull for eight thousand dollars, now they're selling bulls for fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars, even more. Julio's bovine IVF printing business would bankroll his research for several years, and the technology would become a game changer for Australian farmers. Fast forward five years, and by 2011, Julio's research was complete, meaning he was ready to take on a new and even more ambitious challenge.
When Julio is completing his PhD, he did a lot of work in flasks, which are essentially long, square bottles. In these flasks, Julio grew cells, more specifically, bladder cancer cells. Julio would grow the cells and investigate the genes associated with them. Essentially, he was trying to understand the relationship between the gene, the cell, and the cell division. That is, the process that causes cancer. As Julio tirelessly completed flask after flask of delicate research, he identified a weakness in the model. Growing cells in a flask surface is not a good model for uh, research. That model doesn't exist inside the human body. You don't have a flask surface in your body with a single layer of cells growing from your tumor. What you have is you have a solid tumor, or mostly, that grows in a three-dimensional space, right? And form. And there is the other thing as well, when I'm growing those cells in the flask, I only grow one cell type. There's one, one cell line there, and that's it. Tumors are never like that. A, a tumor is a, is a bundle, like a ball, imagine a ball of cells with so many cells and blood vessels and everything. And there was no way to produce models like that in large scale. And as a result, you have a very high rate of failure of drugs because those drugs are tested on those models. Imagine you put a drug on top of cells growing a plastic surface to try to kill the cancer cells. Every single cell in that liquid is going to receive the same concentration of drugs. There'll be no cells stopping it from being accessed by the drug, correct? But now imagine you have a ball of cells with cells in the center, very compacted, and then you have the cells on the outside, and then you expose those cells to a drug. What's going to happen? The cells on the outside is going to get the drugs first. Some of them might die. Some of them metabolize the drugs and break it down. By the time the drug reaches the center of the tumor, the drug has no efficiency anymore. And it means that when you get those drugs that was tested on a plastic surface to kill all the cells and everything's going to kill them, and then you take to, to, to clinical trial, those drugs fail. And it's a very high failure. It costs billions of dollars a year for the whole pharmaceutical and research industry. Billions and billions of dollars wasted because by the time the drug goes to human clinical trial, it doesn't work. And what we want to do is we want to create a model that represents the human body outside the human body. The clients will be met, anyone doing research, trying to understand how a disease works and how do you stop a disease. And medical research institutes, hospitals, uh, universities, and the pharmaceutical industry in terms of scaling up these models for them to test the drugs. Because I have to test the drugs. The way a drug development happens is Someone in a medical research institute found um, a compound that they believe can kill cancer cells, for example. And then they have to screen that, and then they do that manually in the lab, small, small scale. Like they put in the plates and manually, and, and then they found that it has an impact that kills those cancer cells and doesn't kill the, let's say, doesn't kill the normal cells. And then they transfer that for pharmaceutical industry that's going to use and uh, screen it large number of cells and make sure that they can go to a new next. And then the next phase will go into animal trial. As every time you move to a new phase, the cost of it, it goes to a different scale, right? It's, it becomes like, no, almost like, no, you're talking about now animal studies, we're talking about no thousands and millions of dollars, right? And then when it goes to human, it becomes even more expensive. It means that if you can fail a drug very early, you remove that drug from the process, and then you can save a lot of time and, and, and resource. And if you fail before, then you can investigate why it failed 
can I change that molecule some way for you to penetrate deep inside the tumor? And then I have a model that I can test. I don't need to wait until I go to a patient tumor to test it. So uh, the problem seems a, a really important one to solve. Uh, it's always strange that nobody else has, has done this because it seems pretty obvious, but uh, even as a layman like myself. But I think so you, you see the problem and you, and you use, and you come up with the idea to use effectively 3D, te- 3D printing technology to, to solve it. Uh, and this is back sort of 10 years ago when even now 3D printing is still niche, but 10 years ago, I imagine there wasn't much 3D printing around. What, what gave you the idea? That 3D printing could solve this caught 2D two-dimensional, three-dimensional problem um, with cancer cells. Uh, when, when, when you're doing your PhD, you sit there hours and hours doing something. Sometimes we do lots of manual work. For example, when I was growing cells, we have to plate the cells and put them. And and as you're watching these things, as I was doing my PCR, for example, doing all those things, your mind is always thinking, "How can I do this better? How can I do this better?" And then when I was in my PhD, that was '94, uh, that I thought about. I should print the cells and make them as a bundle of cells instead of uh, of um, growing them on the plastic. I thought, well, if I have a machine here, could print those cells and create the models for me, they'll be fantastic. But at first, I never had created a business myself. I thought this was just an idea that you know, put in the back of your mind and never think of that again. But as the technology evolved, and by around 2011, I thought, hold on a minute, Julie. That's if you're not doing this now, you're never going to do it. You have to start. That's what I I mean. I remember I made a decision one day. I say, you start this today, make the investment. And over the time, I have to pay three thousand dollars for the market research. For me, it was a lot of money back then. But I said, you do it, jump onto it, and get it done, and don't worry much about the consequence. Just just do it because you've been thinking about this for too long. I need someone to do the engineering, the hardware material for me, and then. I was talking to, I, at the time there was an intern engineer working for me and we were speaking at 11 o'clock in the morning and I said to him, we need to find someone really bright in microfluidics technology because the microfluidics is the technology that manage printing technology. He went out that same day to a, to a function at the Australia Technology Park in Redfair and he texted me, said, Julie, you can't believe it, you're crazy. You say something in the morning. Our first person I say hello here at the technology park was Dr. Hayden Mahoney, who was probably world leader in microfluidics, and he's working the fast printer, inkjet print technology in the world. He works in a company, Signal, that developed the fastest printer in the world. He's the one that built the printer, the, the prototype in his own home. He started to work for me next, <laughs> straight away. And then a few months later, I went to visit Wulugang. Uh, uh, innovation center that professor Gordon, Gordon Wallace and uh, he has a PhD student that uh, went to be like no help me arrive at the place and, and uh, organize the meeting and that was Dr. Cameron Ferris that uh, I met him I showed him a camera we're going to work together one day and he laughed and then you know, like and uh, that's how how everything was happening there was a lot of serendipities and lots of things happened that makes the whole thing grow and becomes you no. Know, what it is today, uh, I was um, flying from Melbourne to Sydney and I watched the Deep Sea Challenge uh, movie on the plane. They built the submarine for James Cameron to dive to of uh, the Marriott. But the whole thing was done in Balmain by a company called Design and Industry. And I said, oh, if these people can build the submarine for James Cameron, they can build the printer for me because I'm not the best everything. I'm not the best of everything. And then I called design industry and myself and Nathan went and met with them and uh, uh, we hired them there and then to do the work for 
up with the look and the, the, the because when you design, Aiden would design the printer and do everything as a, we call Frankenstein. He built the, the Frankenstein machine that we look, looks, no, there's no design. And then he transferred that, what he built to design industry for them to give that elegance and that beauty to the instrument. Because I want something, I don't want a normal live instrument. I want something that's extremely well done, that shows quality. Every single part of it has quality. That's my, that's my requirement. With a team assembled and a designer acquired, Inventure Life Sciences was beginning to take shape. The core function of the business was to develop a technology called Rastrum. Rastrum is like a complex printer, which basically allows you to create 3D models. It's small enough to sit on a bench, but so powerful that it's a game changer for scientists and medical researchers. The traditional model for drug and biomedical discovery has always been to test the cells on plastic or in animals. It's quick and simple, but because it's often two-dimensional, it isn't always super effective at predicting what will happen in humans. But while 3D cell models are better, creating them has always been a time-consuming, manual, and therefore expensive process. To expand the business, Julio hired key team members and set up an office in Alexandria, in Sydney's inner city. But to fund the business, Julio was taking a big risk. Julio knew that by raising money, he'd be forced to sell a large percentage of the company and possibly lose control of the business. But his focus was on real-world problems, and Julio had to make a big call. This business, he cannot afford me just... The time is crucial to get this to the markets. We need to get, I need to get it fast. And I knew I was going to lose the control of the company, and I'll have to sell... No shares and get investment, but uh, I had no choice. Is that's no? I have to go and go big, go, go big and, and grow. And then, fortunately, uh, I met with Blackbird VC, and I, I remember it was like it was everything that I need. They need everything criteria that that works. Blackbird is just a wonderful company to work with. I have. I'm not saying this because they are my investors. I'm saying, I'm and I was very fortunate to have them on board because they share the passion, they share the vision, they share the, 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 the interest, and, and it's, it's very easy to work with them. Right? And then series, series B 2018, we raised 10 million Australian dollars, and we were actually oversubscribed. We wanted to raise only five, but there was a very strong interest. And then we attract Skip Capital that, again, one, I never heard of uh, of them before, of Atlassia and Kim, and and when I sat in the meeting, I know I want to work with them. I have I have some people I can. There's there some people that I th- doesn't matter how much money I need, I don't work with them, right? And I would never because I know this. It just doesn't work. But it's straight away the vision, the interest in improving human conditions, and the, the, the values, everything matched. And, and it was very very really easy to talk to them. They understand the technology. They understand the value of what we're doing, and then. We have the COVID. We were supposed to start raising capital in 2020, but with COVID, it becomes very difficult. What we did is we got the cost. We never lay off anyone. I I told the team uh, the option was or we stop the company altogether or we have to lay off people or we do something else. And the idea was to share the, the burden in everyone, including the executive team, everybody but... Uh, reduced pay for for that, and we decided that we we have uh, we have very strong values at Inventure. 
one of the things that I'm very proud of and that team, everybody comes to visit, I say, your company has a very strong bed of, it's a very happy place to work. Everybody's enjoyed that. And I have this value that I created my previous. It was that my mission is the success of everyone around me is my success. And that's the value that I carry as a person as well and as a band that I have in the company. And what we do is on the boardroom at the executive level, the decisions are made based on the values of the company. It's not just something that you put in the wall. We live by those those values. And as a result, we have a very successful team. You've raised now, I think, a $35 million Series B, which I imagine values your business well into the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a, it's a super valuable business, but... Like it's like any business, and, and like any anybody venture capitalist need a return, need to return the fund, and, and wants an exit in five to ten years. Uh, so, what's the revenue model that you guys? So you've, you've developed this three D uh, product that mimics a cancer cell and allows uh, drug companies alike to to significantly reduce their costs and reduce their value rate. How did you charge drug companies a subscription fee? Is it a license fee? We develop a model that's unique in the industry that we call it. Print runs. When someone uses the printer, if the print if the print is successful, the printer sends the uh, invoice a charge to the customer every time he prints a, a plate with some number of wells, and the printer knows it's been successful, and then it charge the, the service for the client. Of course, there's a price for the printer because it's a very expensive instrument, but the model is. Every time they do what we call print runs, uh, we get uh, revenue from that. Have you got your product in the market now? Are you generating revenue already from clients? And, and, and how much do you generate from so one client, we call it a drone company, how much would they pay you per year? We have gone to almost 20 research centers in Australia. We have uh, a printer in Dublin at the Royal Court of Surgeons. We have installed during the pandemic, actually, uh, we made a very strong view that um, the, we need to have this printer installed without people traveling. The first printer installed would take a few engineers and a few days to have the printer commissioned. We've done the first print in, in California in 45 minutes remotely, and the printer is working ever since then. So we have another printer in the U.S. already uh, on Big Pharma. I cannot disclose the, the, the cost or, or the revenue, of course, but... We have we have a very strong interest now because there are all this publicity, especially with the capital raising, we start to get um, increased um, interest. And when people see the results, the, the thing that's the, the thing I like the most is when someone in a, in a big pharma see the results of what we're doing, and they because most people don't believe, right? Because there's a lot of no hype in this industry. There's a lot of talk, but because. My principle was go deep in the science first. In the first few years, no one ever heard of us. Get the best science in place, and then you go and talk to people about what you can do. And the results that we're showing in the U.S. is just incredible. And then it started to, to become very, very strong interest. And then um, we have now increased interest by pharma and scientists all over the world. We have interest in the U.K. What this investment is allowing us to do is to now to scale up manufacturing. That's where we are up to hire. We're going to go from 40 people to 150. We hire the salespeople in the US, we hire the, and then we're going to be uh, 
growing the business, we're moving to a new facility. We have to install our labs and our factory in Alexandria as well. I'm very strong about keeping this company in Australia. We have many offers of no, as you can imagine, as we disperse this interest, there'll be interest overseas to acquire the business. And we, we're very careful about you know, that. Uh, no, make sure that I, I, I'm a strong believer in Australian manufacturing. I want to grow manufacturing in Australia. I want, I want to arrive here. The, everything was made in Australia. I was amazed. Everything you buy in Australia was made in this country. And then I watched that dismantling of the, the industry in Australia. And I was always very concerned about that because it creates a very, uh, very high risk for the country. And then the, the epidemic shows that to you. Like I remember I wake up on the early January, to, no, uh, February 2020 and heard that one has an epidemic and a lot of our supplies come from there. And I'm very strong about you no know, start to the, being domestic supplier for us and, and, and create a, a very strong manufacturing capability in Australia. And I'm very strong about maintaining this uh, this company here and generate jobs. A lot of our uh, staff tell us that they would have to move overseas to do work that they're doing. And that's for me something that we're very proud of. And we want to increase that you know, that experience. And by now being able to hire a much larger number of people. It's creating jobs that the people who live in universe and young scientists will never find it. Inventure Life Sciences has the potential to become a global superstar, thanks largely to its B2B model, where it works with large pharmaceutical companies. Its technology could be a game changer in the fight against cancer. But as Julio's businesses progress, so too does his vision. And with Perth's Australian of the Year, Professor Fiona Woods, Julio is working on a new model to work more directly with patients, specifically those suffering from severe burns. Using the core technology of Inventure's original 3D printing model, Rastrum, Julio and Professor Woods are stepping into a new environment, one which comes with its own unique challenges. We start by creating the research instruments for doing research and learn how to build tissues. That experience, that background experience, then take us to build tissues for uh, therapeutic application, right? And that's, I thought that would take you know, many, many years after the Rastrum was in the market for us to even dream of doing clinical application. And in 2018, I was introduced to Professor Fiona Woods and we believe that the core technology of Rastrum has enormous potential to improve the outcome of surgery for people that has been, uh, 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 have burn injuries, right? And, um, and F- Professor Fiona Woods is, 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 is extremely passionate and she's really passionate about improving the outcome of the patients. And we got along soon well because we share that vision of we want to do things as fast and as, as best as possible. And then I met with her, we just got along extremely well because we just have that very strong uh, passion for what we're doing. And that led to us to develop this project. We start to work on some clinical trials of, uh, of um, animal studies. And now we, last year, I don't know if you've heard in the news, we, we got the medical device fund for New South Wales government to take this project to, to further. You now means that we have now the financial support to take this further to start to uh, do clinical trial with patients. And that's against the scratching the surface because we start the skin, muscles, and liver, and we have inquiries about doing a cornea. The, the, the sky is the limit of what this technology can do for you. How big do you think 
the business can get. Now, if you sort of got basically two products, what what do you think? What product has has more sort of global reach and upside? Uh, and how sort of if you're being optimistic on the business, how big do you think this business can get in the next sort of five years? Um, Blackbird's uh, one of the things they, they they like to invest about us. They, they use the term "we are ge- generational business." We are not something that's going to grow up here. And, and, you know, the idea is this is a company that next century will be you know, known as a big business. I see ourselves similar to you know those big companies that were starting on the 1900s. That was uh, you know, when they created electricity and all this the pollution that happened in the 1900s. There was a lot of companies that still pre- present today. We are similar in phase. There's a huge, the huge confluence of technology. What we're doing is we're just picking up all this confluence of technologies, computer technology, uh, fluidics technology, physics, and material science. And what we did is we merged all these people in one place. And it's similar to what people were doing in the 1900s. We're doing now. We create this, this confluence of high tech and evolution and innovation in the same place. For example, Dr. Aidan Mahoney, he was an engineer. He'd never been in a biology lab before. He has to go to university and learn how to grow cells. And that's that's probably one of the main, uh, a, a strong parts of our success is everyone in the company has to learn everything about different fields and work together in this, under the same roof. And that being success and, and the size of what you become, I think is, as I said, just scratching the surface. There's the discovery of uh, the, the development of the vaccine for COVID, for example, they'll bring a huge wave of requirements for drug testing, for treatment testing, mRNA testing. And you cannot continue using those models of LASK that was developed in the 50s, 1950s. To do that, you need something fast because you see, as we saw with the COVID vaccine, you need to do this thing very fast. And that's where we come. We can reduce the time those drugs and those treatments take to go to the market. And... And that's why we got this investment, because we want to prepare ourselves for this very high demand of our technology. And that was Julio Ribeiro, founder of Inventure Life Sciences. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producers are Lindsey Green and Ed Gooden. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast. Listener.